Thank you, John. Good evening. Welcome to the 30th anniversary season here at Los Angeles Opera. How is traffic for everyone? Good grief. Um, to those who are watching on the live stream, hello. Um, you had a better traffic experience than we did, so feel smug about that. Um, thanks for watching online, uh, and uh, thank you all of you for being here. 30th anniversary season at Los Angeles Opera. Uh, the company opened with a performance by Placido Domingo, singing the title role in Verdi's Otello. By any chance, were any of you there on that opening evening, 1986? Yes, yes, excellent. Very cool. So, uh, back for the anniversary uh, tonight. Uh, fitting that Placido Domingo should be involved in both performances uh, on this evening's bill, since he's uh, been intimately involved with LA Opera ever since that debut 30 years ago of the company. Of course, he's the general director these days. Um, and he'll be performing in both of tonight's operas. Um, performing in the first, singing in the first, uh, the title role of Puccini's Gianni Schicchi. Uh, that is a role debut for Domingo, role number 146. Uh, after intermission, he'll be in the pit conducting Leon Cavallo's Pagliacci. So two uh, brief operas, one-act operas, sort of one-act operas, I'll get to that. Uh, not often paired together, these two. Uh, the traditional pairing, of course, is uh, Cavalleria Rusticana and Pagliacci. The shorthand, if you want to sound like an opera insider, call it Cav Pag. Uh, and that makes sense because Cavalleria Rusticana was actually the opera that sort of started this whole tradition of one actors. Um, it inspired Leon Cavallo to write Pagliacci, and uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about that when we get to Pagliacci, but I thought we'd go in order of what you'll hear tonight. So. Gianni Schicchi, to begin, music by Puccini. This was the last opera that Puccini completed. Of course, we know Turandot, he started but didn't finish. Um, this is one of only two comedies from Puccini. And it was a long time coming. It was completed in 1918. Um, a one-act opera had been on Puccini's mind for much longer than that, however. 1890 was the premiere of Cavalleria Rusticana. Great success, music by Mascagni. And all of a sudden, one-act operas were all the rage in Italy. Um, kind of like right now with what are, some are calling a new golden age of television. TV shows are extremely popular. Um, shorter form of storytelling. We can consume an entire story in less time. Um, Kind of a similar thing was happening in Italy at this time, 1890. So Puccini wants to get in on the one-act act. And in, it's, a, it's a long route to get there. Uh, in 1899, so nine years after Cavalleria Rusticana, he finishes Tosca, and he starts looking for a new project. And he says, oh, I've got this idea. What if we did a trio of one-act operas one act opera, intermission, another one, intermission, and a third one. And his publisher, Giulio Ricordi, said, uh-uh, no way, that's too hard to cast, and it's too expensive. So in 1904, time is passing, he uh, 
writes this other little opera set in Japan called Madame Butterfly, which did okay. <laughs> Actually, it was a flop at first, but then he reworked it and it was successful after that. After Butterfly again, Puccini was having trouble finding subject for his next opera. He still wanted to do a one-act opera, and he started bugging his longtime librettist, Giuseppe Giacosa, to do a one-act opera on the subject of Marie Antoinette, which that would be a great opera. <laughs> Wish it had happened. It didn't. Um, Giacosa was battling illness. He couldn't work on the libretto, and he died in 1906. So no Marie Antoinette opera ever materialized. 1907, Puccini again proposes the idea of three one-act operas to his publisher, Ricordi. He says, I've got three stories in mind. It's based on works by the Russian novelist Maxim Gorky. But still, the project was just an idea. There were no financial backers. No one was really interested in it. A project that um, did come to fruition during this time, though, was another opera that you probably recognize, La Fanchula del West, premiered in 1910. Years keep passing, but still, Puccini's got this idea for a series of one-act operas. That idea just is, is stuck in his head. He says, maybe instead of doing a trio, what about just a double bill? One tragic, one comic. Well, finally, he settled on the construction of his one-act opera idea. He went back to his original idea of three. One would be a tragedy, one would be a comedy, and one would have a mystic or religious theme. They would be published together, and they would be performed together in a single evening as Il Tritico, the triptych. By 1916, he had the tragedy done, Il Tabaro, the tavern, but he still didn't have any stories or libretti for his comedy or for his mystic or religious opera. So he put the one-act operas on pause again and he wrote his very first comedy in 1917, La Rondine. Then the librettist Giovacchino Forzano sent him two of his works, which became Suor Angelica, the religious or mystic opera in the triptych, and finally Gianni Schicchi. Puccini liked Suor Angelica a lot, but he was actually less enthusiastic about Schicchi. It was a story um, based on an appendix to an 1866 edition of Dante's Divine Comedy. And he didn't like the setting of Florence, for some reason. He thought the public wouldn't particularly care for the story either. Of course, he was wrong. In 1918, almost 20 years after Puccini first had thoughts of writing a trio of one-act operas, Il Tritico received its first performance, which took place not in Italy, but at the Met in New York City. Tabaro and Angelica weren't particularly well-received, but Skiki was extraordinarily popular. One critic said it was received with uproarious delight. Another said, one of the most delightful bits ever put upon the Met stage. Another, so full of life, humor, and ingenious devices, a rollicking madcap scherzo overflowing with merry deviltries, and the last shall be first, meaning the third in the triptych was the best. The famous aria, of course, in Skiki, O Mio Babino Caro, it was such a hit at that first performance at the Met 
that the singer Florence Easton encored it immediately, even though at that time, encores were expressly forbidden at the Met. Audiences demanded it, and so she did it. Rules are made to be broken, right? Well, Puccini was not at that premiere. He was getting older and travel was becoming more difficult. And he also considered the Italian premiere to be more important than the American premiere. The Italian premiere came a few months after that first performance at the Met, and again, the audience didn't particularly care for Tabarro or Angelica, but they loved Skiki. Well, most of them did. One famous audience member hated Il Tabarro so much that he stormed out of the opera house at the first intermission, and he never got to hear Angelica or Skiki. His name? Arturo Toscanini. And that was the beginning of a feud between Toscanini and Puccini that would last for several years. Uh, they eventually did make up before Puccini's death in 1924. So, a trio of operas where only one seems to be a bona fide hit. And it didn't take long for opera houses around Europe and the United States to start to break up the trilogy. Let's do the one that gets us money at the box office, right? Puccini's publisher, was also putting pressure on him to allow the operas to be performed separately. Puccini, what do you think? Strongly opposed this. Uh, Covent Garden wanted to leave out Suor Angelica, and Puccini called that, quote, a real betrayal. He said his original conception was being, in his words, brutally torn to pieces. The Met eventually joined in, in the dismemberment of Il Tritico, and in 1926, they performed Skiki on its own, on a double bill with Pagliacci, and the Met didn't perform all three operas in Il Tritico together, um, not even once, from 1926 until 1975. Well, tonight we've broken it up again. We've got Skiki on the first half of the performance. And this is the Woody Allen production that debuted a few years ago here at Los Angeles Opera. The opera is set in Florence in the year 1299. Now, Woody Allen's staging begins with an homage to early filmmaking. Um, it's, a very, it's a very funny curtain raiser moment. A street band plays funiculi, funicula, film credits, are rolling on the screen uh, with humorous made-up Italian names uh, like Giuseppe Prosciutto, <laughs> Tonio Salmonella, <laughs> some a little dirtier than that. I will not spoil it for you. Uh, the curtain rises and then we are in a two-story home in Florence. Members of a large, boisterous family are bustling around the deathbed of their wealthy relative Buoso Donati. There's pasta boiling in pots on the stove, laundry hanging on the crisscrossing clotheslines above, and a young boy practicing knife thrusts with a vengeance. Foreshadowing, perhaps? Everyone is pretending to be sorry that Buoso has just died. The family is afraid, though, that Buoso has left his money, his country properties, and his big city house to a monastery instead of to them they begin frantically searching for the will. And finally, Rinuccio finds it 
He is confident that his uncle has left him lots of money. But before he shows the will to anyone, he asks his aunt, Zita, for permission to marry his beloved Loretta. If Buoso has indeed left him a good inheritance, then they can do that. Zita agrees, Renuccio sends for Loretta and her father, Gianni Schicchi, who is a newcomer to Florence, and they come to the house. They read the will, and indeed, Buoso has left all of his money to the monastery. Renuccio suggests that Schicchi is the only person clever enough to save them from their predicament, but the family won't have any of it. To them, he's just a low-class country boy, Schicchi is. Renuccio, though, defends Schicchi in an aria that is equal parts defiant, stately, and Puccini, beautiful. Renuccio suggests that just as Florence draws strength from the surrounding country, so they can rely on Schicchi to help them. Con l'albero fiorito, che in piazza dei signori a tronco e fronte, muore la vici forza nuove apportano, dalle compagni limpide e feconde. So you just heard hints of that famous aria to come, O mio babino caro. Uh, Schicchi then arrives, and that would be Placido Domingo in this performance. He's got greased down black hair, he's wearing a pinstripe suit. He is not treated particularly well by the family. They now say that Renuccio can't possibly marry someone of such humble origins as Schicchi's daughter, Loretta. Well, and then Zita tells Schicchi to take off, get out of here. And Schicchi says he wants nothing to do with these people, and he's certainly not going to let his daughter marry into this family. It's a very public fight, but in the hands of Puccini... Again, that's fighting in the hands of Puccini, arguing. 
Loretta begs Skiki to reconsider and allow her to marry Renuccio. And this, of course, is the most famous moment of this opera, maybe the most famous of all Puccini arias, and it's certainly the most often performed. And it's not quite two minutes long, almost two minutes, but two minutes of sublime beauty. Skiki says, you want me to help people like that? Never, no, never. And then Loretta, and these are her words in translation, Oh, dear daddy, I like him. He's so handsome. I want to go to Porta Rosa and to buy the ring. He's stopping her. Yes, he is. It'll sound better in there anyway. Skiki hears his daughter sing this, and she is awfully convincing. He says, okay, fine, I'll take a look at the will. And he reads it through twice, and finally he gets an idea. He sends Loretta out of the room so she will be innocent of the scheme. And Skiki says... So, no one else knows that Buoso is dead, right? Only those of us who are here know that fact, correct? And the answer to that is yes. We're the only ones in, in the room who know that Buoso is dead. So, what if we take the body out of here? I'll take Buoso's place in the bed. We'll call a notary and I will dictate a new will as Buoso. What could possibly go wrong? So here is Skiki unveiling his scheme in the aria, Run to the Notary. And in this clip, you'll hear the moment where Skiki says, With another voice and form, I shall pass myself off as Buoso Donati. In Puccini can write comedy. It's 
pretty great. Um, and it'll be really fun to hear Placido sing that. Um, so everyone says, oh, that's a great idea, let's do it. The notary arrives and Skiki hides behind the bed curtains and pretends to be Buoso. He begins to dictate a new will and first he declares all previous wills to be null and void covering his legal bases, and then he begins to dole out minor bits of property. Everything's going fine. The various members of the family are satisfied with how Skiki is performing. But as he continues, Skiki, as Boso, then dictates that the mule, the house, and the mills in the country should be left to my devoted friend, Gianni Skiki. Wait a minute, it wasn't supposed to happen that way. But the family can't say anything because the notary is standing right there. And Skiki has already reminded them that two things happen if you falsify a will. The first thing is that you get banished from the city of Florence. And the second thing is way worse. You get a hand chopped off. Not cool. So they're stuck. Skiki takes everything. The notary leaves, and as Skiki kicks everyone out of what is now his house, what happens next is uh, a bit of deft composition from, uh, from Puccini. He is uh, taking the anger and the rage of the family against Skiki, with, and he puts that with a love duet between Renuccio and Loretta, who can now get married thanks to Skiki's newfound wealth and ability to provide a dowry. So you'll hear in this final clip from Skiki, you'll hear him chasing the family away, saying, via, via, via. And the very same music that that ends on, Puccini takes those exact same notes and turns them into the start of a little love duet between Renuccio and Loretta. <laughs> So Puccini. That's why he's so great, though, is because he can take basically the, well, not basically, the exact same musical material and have it 
be the end of something and the beginning of something completely opposite emotionally. Well, after this, Skiki asks us, the audience, to forgive him for what he calls extenuating circumstances. And that's where Puccini leaves it. In this staging by Woody Allen, there's a bit of a twist, a surprise ending after this, which I will not give away for you. I'll let you encounter that on your own uh, in about, what, 90 minutes from now, an hour from now. Well, like Gianni Schicchi, Pagliacci is also a response to the, the uh, popularity of Cavalleria Rusticana. Unlike Puccini, it did not take Ruggiero Leoncavallo 20 years to get his one-act opera off the ground. Pagliacci premiered in 1892, just two years after Cavalleria Rusticana. And no one really knew at that time who Leoncavallo was. That changed immediately after the premiere of Pagliacci, which was an instant hit. Now, Initially, Leoncavallo claimed that the plot of the opera was based on an incident from his childhood. And here's what he said happened. When Leoncavallo was eight, their family servant was murdered. The murderer's brother and the servant apparently were in love with the same woman. However, it turns out that incident probably never actually happened. And when the French playwright Catul Mende caught wind of Leoncavallo's story, he sued Leoncavallo for plagiarism because a love triangle, a play within a play, and a clown murdering his wife was awfully similar to his play La Femme de Tabarin. But in the course of the lawsuit, it was revealed that Mende may have actually copied the play from another very similar play by another writer, Don Manuel Tamayo Ibaos. So Mende said, you know what, I'm gonna drop this little lawsuit. And Leon Cavallo was then allowed to use his story. And he originally called his opera Il Pagliaccio, singular, The Clown. But the baritone who sang the role of Tonio in the premiere asked Leoncavallo to change the title to Pagliacci, plural, clowns, to broaden the interest from just Cagno to include Tonio, his role. A singer thinking of himself, who knew? So technically this isn't a one-act opera. There's a prologue and then there are two brief acts. Just the, the length of it makes it sort of seem like those acts are more like scenes instead, but technically they are acts. So if you hear me say this is a one-act opera, you can say, no, Brian, you're wrong. Um, it's about a troupe of traveling performers who come to a small village to do their show. And it's actually a show within a show. And in a very meta prologue, a clown, a clown named Tonio comes out to inform us that the performance that we are about to see is about real people with real pain, joys, and sadness. <laughs> Oh, 
So again, plenty of beautiful melodies, that Verismo style, uh, still very much intact in this music. The troupe arrives in town in the afternoon and Kanyo, not Kanye, Kanyo, <laughs> the head of the troupe, he uh, describes to us the theme of the night's show, the troubles of Pagliaccio. And he says the play will begin one hour after sunset. The one woman in the show, Neda, is married to Kanyo. He's intensely jealous, and that makes Neda long for freedom. The townspeople suggest everyone goes to the tavern and have a drink. Kanyo and Beppe accept, but Tonyo stays behind, and the villagers tease Kanyo and say that Tonyo is planning an affair with his wife, Neda. Well, Kanyo warns everyone that while uh, he may act as a foolish husband in the play. In real life, he will not tolerate other men making advances on his wife. One of the villagers asks if Kanyo really suspects her, and he says, no, and sweetly kisses her on the forehead. But still, Neda is a bit frightened by Kanyo's strong words, and you'll hear those words in the performance. What fire there was in his look, she says, I lowered my eyes for fear he should read my secret thoughts. Oh, if he caught me, he's so brutal. There's a certain amount of despair and sadness already in her voice, and there's, we're only just a few minutes into the opera at this point. Um, halfway through this aria, she becomes comforted by bird songs, and she sings, Ah, but enough, no more. These are idle, fearful dreams. Oh, how glorious is the August sun. I feel full of life. She calls the birds the gypsies of the sky, and she says, Follow the mysterious power which draws them onward, ever onward. So the mood picks up slightly, but still, we are in a tragedy here. Turns out 
the uh, secret thoughts that Neda was afraid Kanyo would read were more than just secret thoughts. She is in love with another member of the troupe. That would be Silvio, who wants her to run away with him. Tonio, the guy from the prologue, he's also in love with Neda, and he overhears Silvio and Neda preparing to elope after the evening's show. So he goes back to tell Kanyo all about it. And he says, if you leave the bar right now, you might be able to catch them together. So Kanyo arrives just as Silvio and Neda are saying goodbye. As Silvio leaves, Neda says, I will always be yours. Kanyo chases after Silvio, but he doesn't catch him and he doesn't see his face. So he doesn't know who Neda was with. He demands that Neda tell him the name of her lover, but she refuses. He threatens her with a knife, but Beppe disarms him. And Beppe insists that they prepare for the evening's performance. Tonio tells Kanyo that her lover will give himself away at the play, and Kanyo is left alone to put on his costume. He sings a recitative and an aria, which I'm sure you will recognize. To act, while gripped by frenzy, I no longer know what I'm saying or doing, and yet I must. Force yourself. Are you a man? You're a clown. Put on your costume and powder your face. The audience pays and wants to laugh. Again, just a taste. You'll hear the rest in a moment. Uh, of course, that's the uh, famous Vesti la Juba. Translates literally, put on the costume. Turn into, turn into jest your anguish and your sorrow, into a grimace your sobs and your grief. Laugh, clown, at your broken love. Laugh at the pain which poisons your heart. That's the end of Act One. And the second act is the fictional play that they're all putting on. And it sort of walks a thin line between fantasy and reality, as Neda plays a character who plots to kill her husband in order to escape with her lover. Things come to a head when Kanyo, playing the role of Pagliaccio, hears Neda 
playing the role of Columbina, say the exact same words she had said earlier to Silvio, I will always be yours. Cano tries to continue the play, but he loses control, and he demands to know her lover's name. Neda, who doesn't want to break character, says, Pagliaccio. And Cano says, no, my name's not Pagliaccio. He says, if my face is pale, it's not from the stage makeup, but from the shame you have brought me. And the audience cheers his emotional performance, not realizing that it is real. Cano and Neda continue to argue, and the audience finally realizes that what they're seeing is not part of the play. And as you can imagine, this does not end well. Knives are drawn, and after the dust settles, we hear the final chilling line, the comedy is over. Pagliacci was the very first opera to ever be recorded in its entirety. That was in 1907. Leon Cavallo himself supervised the recording. This was also the very first opera to be filmed with sound, and that took place in 1931. This famous production by Franco Zeffirelli has been filmed as well. It's available on DVD and features Placido Domingo in the role of Cano. Domingo, as I said earlier, will be in the pit for this performance to conduct tonight. Uh, the production also, just from a factoid standpoint, features 60 ice cream cones and a live donkey. So wanted to leave you with something lighthearted before you go in. Um, that's the performance. I really hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for being here. Enjoy. Enjoy.